You are listening to Vida Abundante. We have started a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to John. Here's Pastor Jonathan Gallardo. But we've still been in our series of John in the first chapter, and I'm always going to stress this because we haven't got out of the prologue. We're still in the first in the first couple of verses, and the prologue is 18 verses long. And the prologue serves us, the prologue is the introduction to the the whole gospel. It serves us because it gives us the argument of why John is writing what he's writing. And the sole emphasis of John's writing, we read at at the end of chapter 21, is to proclaim Christ and so that we may have life. Those who are reading the gospel in the first century, and those of us now that are listening to this as we as we live in 2019. So the purpose of this is twofold. It is to introduce you to a theological reality of who Christ is, but also that in Christ, you and I may have life. So this gospel is a twofold gospel which presents us the realities of Christ, but it presents us with the reality so that you and I are not comfortable in church, but go spread the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that people outside of the church will have life. The only reason you and I exist in the spiritual realm today is because we've been saved by the mercy and by the grace of God. And that's why we sing what we sing. It was by the blood of Jesus Christ that our sins have been cleansed and have been washed away. So this prologue is very important for us, and I don't want to rush through it because there's no need to. We can spend as much time as we want on the prologue because it teaches us the profound realities of who Christ is. So I'm going to read the first five verses again, and hopefully by now you have this somewhat memorized. So in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. Say with me, life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So some of the things that we've already discussed in these beginning verses start with understanding who Christ is. Christ is, as John puts it, God. He was in the beginning, he was with God, and he was God. So we understand those three realities, and we discussed that, those three realities in deep detail. So the way John proves those realities is, once more, he is God, and so therefore God only can create. So the logos, the word that we've described here in Jesus Christ, is the one who is God and who alone can create. So only God can create. No one else, we talked about this several weeks ago, the devil does not create, does not make anything. He cannot do anything other than stain and distort. Christ is the only one that can create because Christ is God. Now, that's one of the ways he proves his divinity. Now, we're going to do a small shift in verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5 give us the theology of this Christ. So we, we see a presentation of Christ in the first three verses because 
It's not only that he is God, but God has the power to create, and we understood the implications of that, because God creates life, he sustains life, so your life is sustained by God, and we can all say thank you for, for that, because if it was up to us, we would not be able to sustain ourselves. However, this goes more into this concept of just creation. See, if, if although the illusion is there in 4 and 5 to life, light, darkness, that reminds us of Genesis chapter 1, like we've been mentioning this entire time. Although the illusion is there, and the, we could kind of relate it a little bit. If we've read Genesis chapter 1, we can kind of see like, oh, yeah, the first thing God created in Genesis chapter 1 was the light. And he said, let there be light. And then the darkness separated the darkness and, and the sky. And then he named the, the light day and the night. Uh, night. So we see that and we can kind of be like, okay, so I get what John is trying to do. But it doesn't just end there. Because John's sole purpose is not just to show us the creator of the universe, because that would fall short of the bigger picture. Remember what we talked about deism a couple uh, last week? Deism was just the concept or the belief that God created and then God left the universe to run on itself. That's a deistic way of, interpre of interpreting uh, the creation uh, in Genesis chapter 1. So God created and then kind of threw the dice and let creation run itself and run its course. So John's influence here and, and John's expectation for us to understand is that's not the only thing God did. And of course, we don't believe that because we, we studied what it implies for God to create. That means he sustains his life and he's very involved with his creation. But more than that, John is purposely driving us to understand life in Christ. See, Christ did not only create you physically. The reason that you're here today in church, and I believe the majority of you are here today because you have been recreated. There has been a regenesis in your life. What does that mean? Well, that means that you have been born again. Most of us here can say, yeah, you know what? I have been born again. I've, I've accepted Christ in my heart and my life has changed. I was a druggie. I was a drunk. I was a, a, a woman lover chasing girls all the time. I was all of this stuff. And then Christ came into my life, wrecked my life, and transformed me and made me a new person. And I am born again. And that's the purpose and the emphasis of John at the beginning of chapter 1. So that's why in verse 4, this is why it's put out there immediately in the present tense. In these next couple of verses, we have a present tense reality in chapter 4. It says, in him was life. That's what John is trying to get us to see. It isn't only physical life, although it is alluding to Genesis chapter 1. That's not the only thing that he's alluding to. He's alluding to the spiritual reality of him who created you. He created you, and he has given you life. This is a spiritual life. So as we discuss this in further detail, we get to see God as we've divided these verses up in the order that we have. We saw God in the beginning as, as the creator and the, and the, and the one who did all things and sustains all things. And now we're going to see God as the giver of new life. And in this, I'm going to divide this in another subsections. 
from verses 4 through 5. This is going to be our focus for the next two weeks, I believe. Verses 4 through 5 are going to be our focus, and we're going to divide it in three. We're going to divide these, this emphasis of life with the first reality in, in verse 4 that says, in him was life, so we're going to call this the giver of life. We're going to understand that today. The second reality that we're going to learn is that he is the bringer of light. We see that in, in the rest of verse 4. In him was life, and the life was what? The light of men. And then we're going to go further in verse 5 and see this contrast between the light and the darkness. Verse 5 says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So these three realities are presented in these two verses, and we have to spend time in, in, in all of this so that we can understand what John is getting to. So our only emphasis today, and that's why I'm going to cut it short and give you guys a little bit more time to breathe this morning, because if we try to go through the whole thing, I'll probably have you here till 11 o'clock again, and I don't want to do that because I want you guys to come back next Sunday. So we're going to just discuss what this life is. So if Genesis is only an illusion in this life, if Genesis chapter 1 is only something to be kind of referenced at the back of our minds, what does this spiritual life entail? See, Genesis presents us a creation on the physical sense. So if we were going to stay there, here's the problem. So people have thrown it to the Christians, right? And we talked about this a lot. People have thrown this concept to the Christians of, well, where does evil come from if your God is so good? And we've kind of dealt with that in these past couple of weeks, and we've understood where that evil comes from. We, we, we gave an answer to that. The Bible gives an answer to where evil comes from, and we should all be fully aware of where evil comes from. But there's also another harsh reality in this. If, if there is no God, per se, as an atheistic perspective, then the question is, where does evil come from? There's no God, there's no moral right or moral wrong. And then even further, if we are going to believe in a God, which most people in 21st century America would kind of be okay with, a lot would say, yeah, I think right now we're at that 50 percentile, where 50% would probably be like, yeah, there's no God, that was just nonsense. And the other 50, maybe 51%, if we, if we uh, divide the, the percentages correctly, uh, may be still inclined to believe in a God. It may not be the Christian God, they said, but they say, but it may be a God. But if this God only created, the, the, the situation is still the same. The question is still the same. Where does evil come from? Because if this God isn't the Christian God, or, and if he's the Muslim God, or if he's uh, the God of all religions, where does evil come from if he is just distant? So that answer has to be uh, looked for and sought for in our own lives, and we can't answer that question because if God is not the Christian God, you know, the only way to salvation, if he is not, then we have no right to be judged because we don't know any good from evil. What's the difference? What's the difference between a God that says, kill people in my name in 21st century, 
What's the difference between a God that says you can have multiple wives and, and, and be with multiple partners? What's the difference? There's no moral grounds to establish a right from wrong if he isn't the Christian God. So that's why this creation aspect isn't the only thing that John wants to stretch. He wants to get us to understand there's more. And this comes from a spiritual life. He that can give us a spiritual life will determine within us what is evil and what is right. That's why we read Philippians chapter 1. And later when we read Romans chapter 8, we'll understand the concept between flesh, a life of flesh, and a life of the spirit. Only, we can only live in the spirit if we accept the spirit that comes from God. If God gives us the spirit in our own lives. So this life is, is a little bit more than just the physical life. It is a spiritual life. And that's why we're going to discuss this today. He is the giver of life. And this word here, zoe in the Greek, is interesting because only John uses this in the theological aspect. There's, John uses this roughly 50 times out of the 80 times that you find it in the New Testament. So in, in, in John, in the Gospel of John, he uses this word 34 times. In, the, in Revelations, he uses it about 15, 14 times. In his epistles, he uses it about 10 to 15 times. So John is stressing this in all his writings. And he wants his people to understand that the giver of life is giving us a certain type of life. It is a spiritual, transcendent life that we cannot find in anything else. So the only way to come to Christ, the only way to get Christ, is to understand that he alone gives spiritual life. That's why the, the, the hard, we got to press this issue hard, because if you do talk to a Muslim, if you do talk to a, a Hindu, if you do talk to other people in the religious world, you will find a certain kind of acknowledgement of Jesus Christ. Either he was a good prophet, a good moral teacher. He was someone, but he was not God. And if he was not God, then he could not give spiritual life. And this is the, the battle that we face on a daily basis. We have to understand Christ as he who gives spiritual life. And that's the thing that John is stressing. That's why we find this word 36 times in this gospel. John says in this gospel that Jesus himself is life. I'm going to go through, through the book of John super quick, so try to follow me as much as you can. I'm going to be reading several verses from the gospel of John just so that you can get this uh, focus uh, in chapter 5. We read in chapter 5, verse 26, it says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Verse 39, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Eternal life is pointing to him. Chapter 6, verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Who is the bread of life? Jesus. Verse 53. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Apart from Jesus, you have no life. And one of the most famous verses in chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way. And the truth and the what? And the life. 
So there is a strong emphasis from John pointing to Jesus Christ as he who has life, and we can only find life in Jesus himself. Well, what type of life is this that Jesus gives? Well, here's one of the the great realities. Go to chapter 3. And don't worry, when we get to these chapters, we're going to go through these in detail. I'm just reading this so that you can get a sense. Chapter 3, verse 15 through 16, that whoever believes in me may have eternal life. Verse 16, the most famous verse of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. The life that Jesus has is eternal. Why is it eternal? Because Jesus was with God before creation. Jesus is God and Jesus has no time. He is eternal. He's not confined by this this law of time. In chapter 4, verse 14, just to stress, stress it a little bit more. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of, of water well, welling up to eternal life. The, the point that, that John is stressing in all these passages is that Christ's life is eternal life. Now that could be a good thing, but it could also be a bad thing. Because if there is eternal life in Christ, the opposite exists at the same time. There's eternal life away from Christ. That's another conversation, but on Wednesday nights, if you understand Spanish, I invite you to come to our Wednesday nights uh, Bible study on hell. We're studying the doctrine of hell. And, um, and we're talking exactly about this. So if there is eternal life in Christ, there is obviously eternal life outside of Christ. And what that life looks like, the Bible presents a grim reality to it. However, John's emphasis is that Jesus has life. It is a transcendent spiritual life. And we will not find this life anywhere else. That's the whole point of what John is trying to do. You're trying to look for life? You're trying to find meaning to your life? Are you going to find it outside of Christ? That's not going to be the case. You can't because Christ alone has life and he is eternal. This type of life that John represents goes up against what many of his time still believed. You see, there's there's this still the same concept that occurred in the first century. If you guys remember our first teaching on this, John is also stressing an evangelistic message. At the same time, he's having these two different groups of people in mind. He's got Jewish people and he's got Greeks that, that, and Romans and, and, and all these other type of people that aren't from the Jewish background. So he's got to make them understand what he's trying to say. And they understand to a certain extent, because he's bringing these uh, realities to them. In, in this case, eternal life for the Jew was something found after obedience. Eternal life for the Greek was, only af- was found after death, in the sense. And many of you would say, well, like, is that really wrong? I mean, aren't we going to experience eternal life after we die? Well, to a certain extent. But what John is doing, and this is why it's important for us to 
to dig in a little bit is that this present reality of Christ's being eternal is for today. Christ gives eternal life for today. And if we look at the Greek a little bit, it's all of these, all these passages that we just read are qualified with a present tense verb. Echo, which is have. You have eternal life for the present time. So that brings a quality of life that we cannot understand outside of Christ. Many would still think, yeah, like, okay, we'll, we'll experience eternal life after we die. Well, for the Christian, that's not true. The Christian experiences eternal life today. When you come to Christ, when you experience Christ, when you see Christ, when you receive the life of Christ, what you get is for today. This is something that you live in, something that you experience today, something that you move in and therefore cannot be easily destroyed. See, the Christian lives his life upon the rock, not upon sand. It is these trials that try to knock you down, that try to push you down, that try to push you to the side, that try to really bring doubt in you. And no, because the life that we experience in Christ isn't for a future promise. It's not like come to Christ, suffer all you can here in the world and, and not have any, anything to go to anyway. When we die, we're finally going to be with Christ. Well, it's kind of true, but it's not the full truth. You can live a life that enjoys Christ today, even in the midst of trials, storms, and anguish. This is a present reality. That's why we urge people, even you hear us say, we urge people, come to Christ. Your message to your friends should be, come to Christ. It isn't just to go out there and say, hey, come to church, you know, come have fun with us, hang out, we'll go eat breakfast. No, it, that's not the only thing or the only way we should be evangelizing. Sometimes we think that's the only way to evangelize. Hey, you want to come to church? No, okay, cool. I did my part. I don't have to force him. I, that's it. I invited him to church. He didn't want to come. That's on him. That's not it, bro. We got to go more. We, we got to say, come to Christ. Know Christ. Know Jesus because he alone can present to you eternal life. We find this in our present. Jesus is life, and he gives us wonderful eternal life even after his death. This is the beautiful, uh, the way it's depicted in John chapter 14. Even when Christ dies, he gives eternal life. It is the seal of an eternal promise because after his death, he resurrects. And then we understand in the qualification in, in, in chapter 14 that he alone is the way to God. He alone shows the way to eternal life. So friends, Jesus is not only the way, the truth, but he is life and it is eternal life for the present state. For today. For you and me, here and now. Now this this is why it's important to understand his audience. Because as mentioned, this Jewish concept of, of, of life 
stemmed a little bit into a future reality, but they also understood certain aspects of the present. So for instance, in the Old Testament, especially the people of God, go with me to Genesis. I'm going to try to keep your, your face in the book as much as possible today. So I want you to read this. In the Old Testament, we have this concept. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So from here, the Jewish concept of life was something breathed into them. It was the breath of God. It was this breath of life. And Paul takes this in 2 Timothy and says the same thing, that his word was exhaled through his mouth and it brought life and it brought sound doctrine and it brought us to a reality. So this concept in the Old Testament was that God initiated all of life. And we get that to a certain extent because to them, this word, nefesh, is, is tied along with life. That's the way the, they, the, the, the Israelites and the Hebrew people understood life. They called it nefesh. It was the soul. It was the physical, the emotional, the intellectual aspect of their entire being. The soul and, and everything that entailed about it. So this soul, this nefesh, was breathed into them by God. And if God were to take that breath away, Job says in chapter 34, we would crumble back to dust because the, soul received, the, the person received life by the breath of God and it formed them. And if God were to take that breath away, he would crumble back to dust, as we read in Genesis chapter 2. But then the other understanding of this concept of life, of the nefesh, of the soul in the, in the person was a little bit more as we read in John chapter 1 verse 1 and 2. The word was with God. It has this relational value to it. So the people in the Old Testament understood the relationship to be the ultimate experience of God. Now go with me to the Psalter. Psalms. I want to read some psalms to you so you can get this a little bit more to see what I mean. In Psalm chapter 27, verse 4, we read, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Go with me to Psalm chapter 64. 63, I mean. 63 verse 3 says, Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Chapter 65 verse 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Now, chapter 84. Get ready, because we're going to read the entire chapter. 
How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing joy for the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and, sh and swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So what's the whole point? Ultimate life is experienced in relationship with God. The whole Old Testament people, the, the covenant people, they understood this reality. That life was given to them by God, but life was ultimately experienced in the sanctuary. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Can you think of, can you think of even just saying what, what, the, what the psalmist says? I rather would just be a doorkeeper. I mean, I don't even need to be all the way inside. Let me just be a doorkeeper to your house. It's better than being anywhere else. It's better than being in any nightclub. It's better than being in any other part of this world. I would rather even just hold the door of your house. Because they understood that he who gives life will also allow you to experience it at full capacity. So, in a sense... God creates life, and only God knows how his creation will fully enjoy that life. And so therefore, he gives us, in the Old Testament, it was the sanctuary. In the New Testament, it's Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit giving us this opportunity to indwell with God on a daily basis. He gives us the means to enjoy God. Life comes from God. Life is sustained by God. And ultimately, friends, our true happiness, happiness is what everyone is looking for in life. Our true happiness and enjoyment will only be found in God. Everything else is counterfeit. Everything else is only an imitation or a poor attempt to satisfy your soul today. Everything that this world has to offer is a present reality, but everything that this world offers, friends, goes. You have 100 bucks today in your pocket, by the end of the day, probably gone. You have a big, beautiful house today, in 20, 30 years, it may be gone. The whole, the whole point is that God sustains and God 
gives you the opportunity to enjoy life regardless of what this world gives you. If the world gives you good wealth and good cars and whatever this world offers, okay, but that's not where your happiness will lie. Your happiness will lie in a continual relationship with God. He is your true happiness. And that's how the the Old Testament covenant people understood it. I just want to read this to you. Deuteronomy. So go there. That way, when you come back to your house and the people at your home ask you, what did you guys do in church today? Man, we read a lot of Bible. Well, that's good. That's what we're supposed to do in church. I'm going to read chapter 30. I just love, let me read chapter 30, verse 3, and then I'll tell you to skip. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Talks about God's sovereignty in the midst of trial, in the midst of all of this chaos. He's going to bring restoration. But then I love what verse 19 says. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death. Blessing and curse. Therefore, what does he say? Choose nefesh. Choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. That's the quality. How, when you choose life, what God is saying, you're going to choose life. If you do choose life, this is how you live. By loving the Lord your God and obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land of the, of the Lord, that the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The quality of life is found only by loving him, obeying his voice, enjoying him. That's where it is. We read in verse 3 that God's going to restore all the fortunes. Everything, all of the material things are going to be restored to them. But does God say that in life, that's where you're going to find your enjoyment? In the material blessings that he has just restored? In the horses, in the chariots, in the land, in the cattle, in all? No! Life is found only by loving the Lord your God and obeying his voice and holding fast to him. Friends, we have to learn to hold fast to God. Some of us are happy with things. Some of us are not happy without, with, without, with nothing. But we all have to be happy with or without. Because if we have God, we have everything. That's all we need. Paul understands this a little bit more, and I want to present this New Testament reality because we're in John, and it's the first century church, and I want you to understand that even the New Testament writers out of the Gospels understood life to be somewhat similar. Paul understands this life in three different aspects. Paul understands this to be this life to be the core message of the Gospel. What, is, what Paul is stressing is we need this life 
to be presented to all. This is the gospel that you may have life. That's what we read, Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through all the way through 25. But in 21, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The only reason to exist is because of Christ. It's the core message of his gospel. The other aspect of his understanding is that it brings a present tension. This is what I love about Paul, because Paul is, is real. And Paul says, you know, we have to live in Christ, like, we, like John says, eternal, eternal life we find in Christ for today. So this present reality, we have to live through it. And it's not easy. How many of us right here would be able to admit, oh, life is easy? No, life is not easy. When you get, even when you get married, it's not easy. And then you get kids, and it's even more difficult. Life is not easy at all. So Paul understands this, and it brings us present tension. He says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 25, that we are to live and walk in the Spirit. Walk in step with the Spirit. So that brings us two indications. One is the indicative that we live in the Spirit, and the other one is that we have to walk in the Spirit. So it's an indicative and an imperative. Live and walk. What, what Paul is saying is that this present reality of life allows us to have the Spirit of God, but then we have to demonstrate what that life looks like by walking in the Spirit. How much easier would it be to say, yeah, I'm Christian, and then live however you want and however you please? Paul says, no. This life gives us two strong indications to live and to walk by the Spirit. And then in Colossians, he says, we've died in Christ, and so now we live in Christ in the present reality, but we also have a future reality that is that we are going to be revealed with him in glory. We will see him face to face. So these realities of present tension of of, of what the theologians call the already not yet concept, that, that, that the kingdom of God has come, but it's not fully here. So we have to kind of deal with this life right now. Like, why aren't we all glorified? Why aren't we all, if, if the kingdom of heaven is here, why can't we all just enjoy and just relax and kick back, go to the beach and just relax? Because it's not fully done. There is a present tension, and there is that moment of living in the Spirit now. That's why in Romans chapter 7, Paul is battling with this concept. Like, man, I, I want to do what's right, but my, my flesh is pulling me this way, and I want to do this over here, but I can't because my flesh is doing it. It's a tension, and all of us feel it. We all, have, we all suffer with this tension of sin. It's like, oh, I wish I didn't have to think like that. I wish I didn't have to say those things. I wish I didn't have to act it out. It's there. And friends, that's a good tension to have because if, if you're not in a tense life with, as a Christian, then that means you're probably caving into sin and really nothing, your conscience isn't bugging you. Like you're just living in sin and you're like, this ain't that bad. This is cool. I don't have to feel guilty. I'm, there's no more condemnation in, in my life. Not, well, not. Friends, there is this life that we have to walk in the spirit and not cave to our flesh. But the ultimate aspect in Paul's theology is not only that we live, that, the, that this life is a core message of the gospel, that this life is a present tension, 
but that this life will ultimately bring us to the greatest reality that the Old Testament people understood. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, that we may be home with the Lord. The greatest reality of this life is that wonderful concept that we get to experience relationship now, but one day, friends, now you may think that this is nonsense, but one day you and I will be able to be face-to-face with Christ. One day we will see him. Right now we don't see him. Paul says this is a shadow of what's to come. We could experience a relationship with him, but remember the fact that one day we will stand in his presence face to face. No more sin, no more sickness, face to face, glorified, and we will get to enjoy that forever. And for Paul, that life is what he wants the people to understand. And in a sense, this is what John is presenting. There's no life outside of Jesus Christ. We're not here in church separate from Christ. We're here because of Christ. He alone contains life and a life that is eternal and that gives us joy for this present time. A life that will sustain us and a life that will take us all the way to God. One day you and I will stand before the presence of our creator. Now, how that moment is going to be, I don't know exactly. But you and I will face him. Because there is a coming judgment. Everyone's going to face it. Even those who have already died. What that's going to look like, a lot of what you live today will demonstrate itself on that final judgment day. So you have to be very careful. And that's why we repeat the words of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. Choose life and choose Christ because this life is ultimately a gift from God. It is a gracious gift that is given to his people. Now the the opportunity to live in a spiritual life is available. It's here. It's now. I know it may sound cliche, but none of us know whether or not we're going to live tomorrow. None of us know whether or not we're going to live till the end of the night. This is a life that is available now. So choose it. If you haven't come to Christ, I urge you, run. Go to Christ. He is life. Don't ever confuse your presence in church to be a fulfilled life in Christ. A lot of us come to church, and we've been coming to church for many years. That doesn't mean anything. John says this in his epistle, 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. He who has the Son has life. He who doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. It's always the case with John because John is 
theologically bringing his people, but once again, presenting the gospel. There's always two ways, light and darkness, that we're going to read next week, life and death. And in his epistles, it's the same thing. He who has the Son has life, and he who doesn't have the Son has death. So friends, this morning, choose life. Come to Christ. Give yourself to him. Respond to this inner call that is coming to you at your heart this very moment. This could be you. You could be living but not living eternal life. Just be breathing and living for what this life has to offer you here. But it isn't eternal life from Christ. We tend to seek life in enlightenment, in philosophy, in moralism. But friends, it's never going to be there. You can say, I'm a good person all you want. Moralism doesn't save anybody. Only Christ saves. So choose life. Amen? Let's stand up. Bow your heads with me in prayer this morning. And Father, at the end of this moment, we come to this great reality that we understand as Christians, as sons and daughters of the Most High, that our greatest life is found in relationship with you. That there is no more enmity between us. That I am no longer your enemy, but that you have given me a new life. A life that sin and, and the life that has been tainted by the, the deep consequences of shameful sin have been wiped away by your blood and therefore have been cleared. And now I get to stand before a righteous and holy God through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that if anyone here today has yet to understand that or wants that, that they could respond to you and come to you. They could finally realize that this life has nothing to offer because only you offer eternal life. I pray for this church that we learn to walk in eternal life, which means that we have to face this present reality with attention but that because we are sons and daughters of Christ, we walk in the Spirit, in this new life, and we don't walk by the flesh. We are always in your hands. We'll always live in your hands. And we will find our greatest gratification in your presence. In Jesus' name.